Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Prologue Bookshop, your source for inspiration, imagination, and community in the Short North Arts District in Columbus, Ohio. At Prologue, we value the power of reading and literature and the connections that come with being a local bookstore in a global world. We're proud to be independent, and we're grateful for folks who choose to shop local with us. Learn more at prologuebookshop.com. And we're brought to you by Literary Cleveland, developing writers, amplifying voices, and transforming our community through storytelling. You can explore other voices and discover your own. Search for classes and find your creative community at litcleveland.org. Losing my father during the pandemic was absolutely the most heart-wrenching thing I've ever been through. So far, grieving a beloved parent, I give it two big thumbs way down. But something I didn't realize is that grief teaches you to speak a shared language. Almost overnight, it's like I developed a kind of sadness radar. When I meet someone who's also endured a loss, who has hurt rolling around in their pockets, it's like an instant connection. Even if we don't know each other, we can cut right to what's honest and true. I think grief teaches us how to commune with strangers over loss. That's actually part of the reason I started this podcast. Today's guest, Saeed Jones, lost his mother when he was 24, but the memory of this beloved woman tiptoes in and out of his poems. I never had the good fortune to meet his mom in real life, but I've come to know her on the page again and again. And I invited Saeed here today to celebrate the way he weaves both joy and sadness into his writing. We speak each other's language, and this is a real gift in the storm. Saeed Jones is a Pushcart Prize-winning writer whose first collection of poetry, Prelude to Bruise, was a 2014 finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. His 2019 memoir, How We Fight for Our Lives, won the Kirkus Prize for nonfiction. And his second poetry collection, Alive at the End of the World, is a 2023 winner of an Annisfield Wolf Book Award, the only national juried prize for literature that confronts racism and explores diversity. Saeed Jones, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Hi, Anne-Marie. Hey. (laughs) So you and I both live and work and write here in Ohio, but I had to Mm -hmm. go to Seattle to actually meet you. Yeah, Yeah. that's funny. I mean, you know, I've been um, going to AWP for that writer's conference where we were, you know, on and off really since college. And um, something that I've thought about over the years is that when I lived in New York, I had plenty of writing or publishing friends that I knew lived in New York, but like in New York, you we would only it would like two ships passing a happy hour. You know, we were like <laughs> waving at each other from across the room, and only when we would like meet, you know, in LA at some conference or in Seattle or Portland would we actually get to like go to dinner and da 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 da. And then yeah, now that I'm here in Ohio. Um, it, it's not unusual for me and my friends who live here, who are also writers, to like be so busy when we're home that it's it's hard to it's hard to see each other sometimes. And then we're like, oh wait, but you're in Seattle too. 
That was most excellent. Well, I was actually catching up with an old friend, one of my favorite writer people who lives in Seattle. And I'm like, where are you going? Because I was trying to get her to bail on the conference and just like go to breakfast three times with me. She's like, no, 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 no. I am going to hear Saeed Jones read poems about the apocalypse. I'm like, the apocalypse? I don't know. She's like, no, no, no. It's going to be fun. And indeed, it was the most fun I've ever had talking about the apocalypse. You and Franny Choi and Brenda Shaughnessy, you guys read and discussed, somehow discussed the brokenness of our world with such love and levity that I really did think that if I am ever on a sinking ship, like you three, um, <laughs> we'll put the fun and the dysfunction and we will just go down together. <laughs> go down smiling. Absolutely. That was I, amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I really enjoyed I, I remember being very nervous um, because I care so much about Franny and Brenda and, and the group of, you know, the audience. I mean, it was a packed. People were actually being turned away at the door. And, you know, It was my first time back at AWP since, I think, 2016. Um, and so my, my hands were shaking, you know, which is unusual for me. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think – I know Franny and Brenda well enough to know, and I think this is true for me, that no matter what topic we're discussing, we put a lot of care into creating the conditions so that even when, and we often are, talking about very difficult um, ideas um, and experiences and difficult can function in a lot of ways. We're also trying to make sure that people feel um, that they are cared for, that they're being held in the conversation. It's not, I, I don't want to um, be saccharine, right? I, I don't want to, I don't want to like prevent people from going to the depths and getting to the real ideas. But I've just learned over the years that it's like you can, there's a way to balance the grief, the calamity, the violence that you are dissecting, you know, either in your your prose or poetry, you know, as a speaker at the front of the room, there's a way to kind of create a space in which people can like exhale between the poems. People can have that. And there's also like something particularly like with the apocalypse, like I think it's like there's a relief in having these feelings that we're all carrying with us, like acknowledged where you're like, oh, Thank God. I thought it was just me. You know what I mean? That's such a huge part of really what the three of us were thinking about in terms of like the queer poetics of the apocalypse. So it, I mean, we're funny people too. We're, you know, you know, Brenda, like her poetry is like full of such wit and such wordplay. So laughter was going to happen anyway. But, but yeah, I just think that that is part of who we are and it's a part of our ethos. So yeah, I'm glad you had a good time. I was telling people, I'm like, this is going to be the most fun conversation you've ever had about the end of the world. And it was, <laughs> it absolutely was. And it was a safe place to, I mean, people wept openly. I know I was certainly one of them. And we also just sort of like chortled and guffawed and felt felt held. So thank you. Uh, but, but for folks who are listening, who didn't have the good fortune to hear you to read to a packed room or who've not discovered the um, the Vibe Check podcast, um, why don't we just let's catch them up? So, Saeed Jones, why don't you tell us, you know, some of your story? Sure. I am a poet uh, and critic. Uh, and an essayist. Uh, I've published three books, two books of poetry. My most recent book, Alive at the End of the World, is a poetry collection about grief, personal grief, collective grief, and of course, in the context of 
you know, this 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 moment that we're in that's not unique in human history by any means, but, you know, maybe for us, you know, as people living right now where you just kind of feel like it kind of feels like it's the end of the world, you know, it's just like a, a refrain and I want it to write into that. Um, I am black and queer. I was raised in um, Memphis, Tennessee, and then the suburbs of, of North Texas. And so I grew up in the South, um, and came of age and came into being as as a young writer, you know, obviously really thinking a lot because I had to about the intersection of race, sex, gender, and power. I think you see that manifest in different ways in all of my work. And um, yes, I'm a poet by trade, but uh, I love all different kinds of media. Um, and so like you mentioned, like, you know, I have a podcast called Vibe Check with my friends Sam and Zach and I was a news editor for for six years. I, you know, I've 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 spent a lot of time on on social media. Um, I, I delight in the ways in which you can use, hopefully use, and not be used by different types of media to connect with people and and to to do these ideas. And sure, I would I would love it if every single person who knew of me read my poems, but that's just not true. Some people, it needs to be a substack. Some people, it needs to be a podcast. And I believe in what I'm talking about. So I'm game to try on as many different masks as I need to. <laughs> yeah, we got to we gotta get get at people where, where they are, if it's the, the, the TikTok thread or if it's in a chapter book. Tick, and I got to tell you, TikTok is the one, I'm like, I, I can't I, do it. I keep, so friend. <laughs> it's the one uh, thing, I can, it's the one bridge I a, can't a cross. A writer friend of mine is like, no, 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 Amory, you just got to do the direct to camera and talk about the books, which is so funny, right? I've got a podcast where you and I are literally right. looking into cameras, talking about books. But every time I try to do it for TikTok, I'm just like, Ugh, I can't hold the camera and the book at the same time. And my eyes look crooked and I'm not there yet. But I know, I know it's coming. I, I like that you mentioned that these times that we're all living through, they have happened before. We kept using that word unprecedented during, especially during the pandemic, like, oh, this is such an unprecedented time that we're living through. But at the kind of violence, especially that you write about, um, the kind of erasure, the kind of grief and broken promises that we see in your book is actually quite precedented that you are calling um you know calling out to to creative and literary ancestors and this has happened before and it's still happening now so the terrible timelessness of the the kind of violence and grief that you write about um something about that familiarity is like triply heartbreaking. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I think your relationship to the word unprecedented, yeah, in this context really is about your relationship to history. You know, um, whether as a, a queer person, a queer Black person, you know, thinking about the HIV AIDS uh, pandemic, which started in the early 80s and is still going on and impacting people in different ways around the world and in this country, depending on race and class. Um, I think about uh, the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. I was thinking about that when, when you know, like, 
the, the summer of, I guess, 2021, right? Like, like the protests and everything and, and George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. And I remember spending some time with um, a literal critical race scholar who pointed out that the Tulsa race massacre took place like right after the yellow fever <laughs> pandemic like that. And I, I, I had never, I, I thought about, you know, it was kind of like in my, and I think this is true for a lot of us who are not historians, um, that the way we have been taught, particularly U.S. history, it's like these like boxes. And so it's like yellow fever, the roaring 20s, the Tulsa race massacre, the depression are all in different boxes. And, and, and in that moment, he was like, no, it's the same box, basically, you know. And so, yeah, I think just as a person, as a citizen living through the pandemic alongside all of you, and, and I really was not trying, I was not trying to write. I wasn't writing. I couldn't read for at least the first full year of the pandemic. You know, I couldn't read like a paragraph. It was so hard to concentrate. Um, but then with time, I just started turning, as you mentioned, to artists and, and their experiences and, and to these moments in history. Um, into the precedented. And and I began to realize that for me, the reason this calamity that we're living through, that I'm living through, feels so pointed is not that it's unprecedented. Is in fact it feels so pointed because it's a repetition. And 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 that, you know, one of America's real lies is this like sense that we we survive history and don't get to repeat it. That that's that's part of like the, the like the American victory is like our reward is like we don't have to deal with problems again. We're good. Like slavery's over, right? You know, like Jim Crow, it's over, right? You know, and and so then you're like, it's definitely not. And I actually feel very alone because I feel like I, I'm aware of the repetition and I'm surrounded by other people who refuse to acknowledge it. Or who keep pointing and attributing individual responsibility to what are clearly collective and systemic and institutional and things that the government could tackle, that we that we have this um, bizarre tendency to point to someone and be like, well, well, you're just kind of that way. And we don't unpack, well, what what was the school like where where you were? What was what was the redlining like in your housing district? What kind of health care did you have or not have? I uh, you know, I read, I went back and read. So I'm for folks, I'm holding them up so they can see them. So um your 2019 memoir, How We Fight for Our Lives, which I had read before when it came out, and then I went back and read it in um, in conversation then with um, Alive at the End of the World. And I, for folks who haven't read it, um, we get to meet your mother in in your memoir. We see her alive, and then and then heartbreaking, our hearts breaking with you. We see her passing away, and then of course in your poetry, we. Are grieving with you. I was I was so grateful to come back and re remember your mom, this woman I love that. who she did. She loved me so well. Loved yeah. you so well. Loved you the best she was able. She loved you so well, the best that her heart could love you for as long as her heart could love you. And here is a woman for whom I think the temptation would be to ascribe this individual. Well, you know, 
if you hadn't worked so hard or if you had been to the doctor sooner, that we want to ascribe this individual yeah. Even nonsensical. out of care, right? Even right? out of like right? an attempt to, like, and I was seeing um, a book, I'm, I'm reading um, Christina Sharp's uh, new book, Ordinary Notes, and, and this is attributed to another writer who I can't recall, but she says something essentially that like hate is usually learned in the context of love. And, and, and you see certainly in how we fight for our lives, right? Like in terms of homophobia, like the ways we can often and specifically when we're trying to support each other, when we're trying to care for each other, we can say hurtful things. And so, yeah, I mean, I, when, with health in this country, certainly, you know, to acknowledge like just how violently incompetent and dysfunctional our healthcare system is, I think it's just hard for people to face because it's it's it, it's it feels like a brick wall. And so instead it turns to, as you said, Emery, like this personal response. Well, you can get out and do exercise more and you can de- and it's like well yeah in theory it would be nice but but also we have to acknowledge that there are um some mountains there's some mountains between what we can do and and what what we could or should do and yeah there were some mountains my mom wasn't able to cross History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. I'm wrong, but uh, this is pre-pandemic, right? It's 2019, the memoir. I finished, I was just finishing the book tour for How We Fight for Our Lives. I was like, oh, it'll be so nice to have some time at home. (laughs) And it was February 2020. (laughs) And two weeks later, I was like, oh, okay, we're all at home now. You're only going to have time at home. Well, you're lucky. I'm glad you got to have it at all. It was an incredible experience. It Uh was. It was. So I definitely read it pre-pandemic. I felt like I had read it much longer ago. When I went to my shelf to grab it, I thought, what was that book that came out 10 years ago? (laughs) I mean, 2019 does feel, I mean, a lifetime. It feels like a long time ago. So I'm envisioning you coming from the the fanfare and the well-deserved whirlwind that was that memoir and then kind of falling under the pandemic shroud that we all fell under. But then you're alone, presumably writing alive at the end of the world. Um, I, I don't know. I, it chronologically makes sense to me that this would have come out of that. 
Um, but what in the world did that feel like to be trying to write poetry? <laughs> like I couldn't, I couldn't eat bread. I, I could only eat bread. It was just yeah. like, I couldn't do anything. How did you write poetry yeah. during that time? I mean, significantly, I, you know, there were some poems, um, they're like, and when I say something, I'm like, like three poems that I wrote between 2016 and 2019. Um, the poem A Stranger, which appeared in The New Yorker, I remember writing in a cafe one day in New York when I was still working on a live, um, when I was still working on how we fight for our lives. But 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 generally, um, the poems, and certainly when I was like, oh, this is a poetry collection. This is, th- there's a relationship between these different pieces that I'm collaging together. None of that energy and clarity happened until literally I was vaccinated. I think it was, I think it was basically, I think I got my second shot in late April of 2021. And, you know, and and it was like, you know, in the months leading up, I started, I was able to start reading books again. And I had to like, I literally kind of retraining my brain. I would use little hourglasses. And I was like, you can read for 15 minutes. You can read for 30 minutes. You can read for 45 minutes. So it was, it, it was, it really, it felt almost like a athlete, um, Dealing with an injury, I, I've read about people who are like athletes or just, you know, very um, physically active people. And like, let's say you're a jogger and then you like hurt your ankle and like to heal, you have to just, you have to stop moving. You have to. And like, that really does take a toll, right? And then you do the rehab, you do the rehabilitation and it's step by step and it's really patient and you're cautious. And then you're picking up speed, you're picking up speed. And and when you finally are back on the track, you're not just running, baby, you're running with like the joy and the gratitude and, you know, like it's like never before. And that's exactly what it felt like. I have never written so fast and furiously. I was waking up. My, my rule was with a life at the um, at the end of the world. My rule was if I wake up, I wake up. So, so, and often, you know, I'm the kind of person who I'll wake up briefly at like 4.30 in the morning, look at my phone or something, go back to sleep. And so, uh, but that was, I'm up. <laughs> So I was waking up at 4.30, 5.30, 6.00 because I found I really, I mean, one, I was so excited. Often when I am writing really anything, I try to, let's say, even if it was like a book chapter, I try not to finish that book chapter because I think if you come the next day and you're like starting from scratch, you're like, okay, next, it's just like, then you're spending like two hours just trying to figure out where the opening scene is. But if you already know what you're going to, you're waking up like, Oh, now I get to do, you know? And so, yeah, I, it just, I was so grateful. Um, And maybe again, that's part of the loop of the title. I was so grateful to be alive, but it was the end of the world. Mm -hmm, you know. mm -hmm. And So yeah, that sense of, gratitude and mad laughter and also being like well but wait a minute you know everything you know there were a lot of losses along the way um that is what a lot of the work came out of well let's hear some of it for folks who haven't had the good fortune to know it um i i showed you my tabs in my book because i i was like well i'll mark the ones that i would like for him to read and and of course we'll be here (laughs) all day and that would be fine with me but i know you've got other things so why don't we look at a spell to banish grief would you mind reading that A spell to banish grief. Only when you wake to a fistful of pulled hair on the floor beside your bed, and from a glance can guess its weight. When you study dried tear streaks on your cheeks like a farmer, figuring out where the season went wrong. 
When a friend calls out your name three or four times before you know your name is yours. When your name fits like clothes you've suddenly outgrown. When there is too much of you, too few of you, too you of you, and the mirrors wish all of you would just look away. When the clocks can't feel their hands and the calendars begin to doubt themselves. When you begin to agree with the glares from mirrors, but your reflection follows you around the house anyway. When you catch yourself drunk on memory, candles lit, eyes closed, your head tilted in the direction of cemetery grass, yellow and balding above what's left of the body that birthed you. And you try to remember the sound of laughter in her throat and fail. Only then, orphan, will I take all myself and leave. Okay, so people can't see. I'm literally crying. <laughs> take it a oh moment. My take it a moment. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, my oh, gosh. God. Oh, this one hits me in such a soft, a, a soft, soft place right below my rib cage. This, um, thank you. What a dream come true. I, I actually brought this poem. I'm a, I'm a high school teacher. When I'm not doing this, I brought okay. this poem to class this spring. I had a number of students lose parents both during the pandemic and before, in particular moms. Um. And when I was a brand new teacher, you remember this from teaching. When I was a mm-hmm. brand new teacher, I would enter the classroom armed. I would come. <laughs> I would. I would have read. I've annotated. I'm. I know my ready. stuff, and I've got. Yeah. I'm ready to face you with my armor on. I've got discussion questions <laughs> and the word and the tone, and and I'd orchestrate mm-hmm. the conversations. And I, um, I brought this poem in plain, and I just said to them, I heard this poet read. And I want us to read some. And here's this thing. I wonder if we could read it together. And they read it. It was gorgeous. I wish I had videotaped it for you. They read it again and again. We have a number of ways we read out loud. And the the breadcrumb trail that they followed through your poem, back through and into their own grief, and the permission that this gave them to share, I, we, oh, oh, these so kids, I, I don't want to tell their sh- stories. Thank oh, you for like, sharing this with me. Oh, this, man. they, um, oh, lines they love. They, mm-hmm. and they just were in love with and and talking about what it's like to feel like there's too much of you, too few mm-hmm. of you, too you of you. The cadence of that, everybody was nodding their heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, talking about feeling drunk mm-hmm. on memory, they knew exactly what that was like. And talking about one of them said tilting toward the cemetery grass and the and the pull she always feels toward the memory of her mother who she oh, never talks about that is about. like physical that it's physical oh man and that word orphan there towards the mm. end that sort of sneaks up on you and then punches yeah. you a number of my of my students too in particular you know had lost moms and didn't have dads and had mm. and Oh my God! This is a, an incredible gift to the world. I can't believe I got to hear wow. you. Um, I didn't mean to cry like a big baby, but um, <laughs> oh. oh, that's so beautiful. Oh, and to think of young people already being—you know—I lost. I was uh, 24 when my mom passed away, and I, you know, I 
I look back and I go, oh God, 24, you were such a baby. You know, you were a child. And but gosh, for them at that age, it's it's um it's interesting because with that poem, right? Like it's it's I I just I mean, one, I, I was interested in it. So so with my writing, with poetry in particular, I find that the poems in the long run I come to most admire because of their ability to be um, gifts for readers, right? Like you said, like the like what it kind of opens up for people. I can't write thinking about that. That that's that's like too. I'm like uh-uh, I would never, you know. <laughs> so it's like I trick myself. So I'm looking one way, doing it, and then only afterwards. And so with that, I was like, oh, you know, a spell to banish grief is impossible. That was that was my thing. It's an impossible. You can't do it. To get rid of grief would mean to get rid of the love. And obviously you don't want to do that. And I was like, oh, okay. And so for me, this speaker, and you kind of don't realize until you get to the orphan who's speaking to you, is grief. They're saying, you're not going to get rid of me. How dare you? How dare you? And so the speaker is actually really mean. Like I, to me, I think all of the examples that the speaker grief is summoning and putting forth are kind of the most brutal, pointed, like, damn, like someone's already down and you're like kicking them in their side, like kind of being like, yeah, your clothes don't even fit. You don't even know your name. And like, you look, you look bad when you look in the, you know, it's just like, Jesus <laughs> Christ, like give them a break. Um, and, and that's really what I was just like leaning into. And I think maybe obviously I was able to do that because again, I was, just focusing on a character. It was not Saeed, the writer. It was not Saeed, the person. It was Saeed, the author, like really just thinking about this persona. But then when you step back and, you know, now it's been, you know, a few years since I, I wrote that poem and there's such compassion. Like it's, it's so interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I love that, that, that even um, uh, a character that when the writer is, you know, building it, a character that kind of doesn't seem to wish you well, something else kind of comes through that stained glass window, you know? And and to think of uh, particularly a teenager um, being like, that's it. That's, that's the tilt. That's it. I just... Oh man, I think writing and 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 what it allows us to do and like where it takes us. Like I think technically... I feel very in control of my craft. But again and again, particularly with young people, their relationship to poetry is so different. The wisdom, when I sit down with young people and they share things, I always learn new things about my own poems. And, you know, maybe there are writers out there who'd be like, never admit that. And I'm like, no, I'm I'm shook. I hadn't (laughs) thought about (laughs) I hadn't thought about that. I think it's such a gift, you know. That's true. You can control the poem to some extent on the page. Not Uh entirely right. Sometimes the line just gets away from you. And you're like, stop going there. But Uh but at least you're in charge of when it leaves your room. But then those right. poem babies go out into the world and you don't know mm-hmm. who they're finding yeah. when they're finding them. You talked mm-hmm. about feeling like the only young black queer kid and I can think of three who now have your story in their pockets who aren't alone because you wrote it down, who aren't out there wondering if they're the only ones because they know they're not. Yeah. And what a great gift that is. Yeah. I was at the LA Times Book Festival and 
someone asked me in the book signing line about universality and, and what I've learned. And it it really is like, don't think about universality. Like I said, like, like, you know, if you like, that's how to me, it's like, that's how you end up writing a Hallmark card by accident is if you're just like, how can I write the thing that does this very specific thing that reaches as many people? It's like, well, you know, you're going to be stripping yourself of like every option you have as an artist while trying to create it. But if you just say, I think grief is really mean, actually, and it's it's kind of rude. And and when you've particularly with me, when you know you've lived with it for a decade, and so it's it's it, it's this other thing. Oh, and that was the other thing. You know, like in in the memoir, you're saying grief. You're saying, but it's it's, it's the initial experience. So you're really seeing the like shock and awe of of the like just which is woof and very very difficult but i also realized i was like well but also what happens months and years later when you know the calls stop people stop coming to bring you food and flowers and checking on you constantly and you're back at work and maybe it's five or you know what i mean like that because grief is like queerness non-linear so it, it's not necessarily oh it's been 10 20 years. i don't know like you know you can you can smell a cologne. Someone can pass you on the street wearing the cologne that like your beloved and long gone uncle used to wear. And then suddenly it's like you're a kid again. You know what I mean? And so I just, I, I think it's, it's like if you lean into the specificity and just like the sincere spark, that hot wire, whatever it is, um, of course, then that tends to be the, that spark tends to be the thing that actually makes it, if not universal, um, deeply human in a way that a lot of people maybe that you might not be thinking about, that you might not anticipate. Connect sure. With, I think you you, forget, you have a poem about that, right? That where you're grieving the grief that you used to be able to have, the way it sometimes is so new. Oh, let's. Oh, yeah. Can we do? Was it's it grief, grief number, number one? one. I was. It's yeah. tricky because it's at the back of the book. You you sneak. Right, right. I but found it's, it. I, <laughs> wait a minute. Mine's miss. No, mine's very, misnumbered. It is a very sneaky book. It's a yeah. seventy-two. Would you yeah. mind reading oh, yeah. that one? Because that really is of course skips along the surface of what you're saying. You're absolutely right. Um, I'm glad you. I hadn't even thought about that connection. Books, right? man. Who knew? Who wrote you this? know. <laughs> okay, grief number one. I grieve my early, pristine grief. The earth we piled onto you, still soft and unsettled. The worms still at bay. The face I remember, still mostly your face. I grieve a living room sick with the scent of farewell flowers. Paper cuts from all those cards. I grieved my body before my stomach recalled its hunger, before my neck demanded a man breathing against it, before all the empty bottles, before loss began to calculate its profit margins. Simple grief. Innocent grief. Grief unfamiliar with who I was before I started grieving and who I would become after the sunset on my last few minutes as your son. I've never taught that one before, but you mentioning it just 
there is this busyness that happens right afterwards where you have a formula to follow. Right. You know, you yeah. you you wrote about that in your memoir that mm-hmm. you're you're very you, busy actually. You've you know, got planning you, the funeral. You're too busy to be sad because yeah, I've uh-huh. got we got to feed people, yeah. and we got to make yeah. sure we call. We don't want anyone not to know there are phone calls, and we have to receive. We have to console others yes. in there. Remember that job? Oh, they, it's a whole oh, we gotta, thing. We got to make them yeah. feel better because they're just so work. sad about uh-huh. your loss. Uh-huh. That one in particular. And then finally, you are actually at home alone. You know, and and I'll never forget. Yeah, like in, um, you know, my mom when she passed away, and I'm actually grateful for this that when she had her heart attack, she was visiting my grandmother, her mother, for you know, intentionally for for Mother's Day weekend, and so it meant that she was home, she was with family, and I just, yeah, there's just that moment. You know, for me, I was living in New Jersey at the time, so all the, it was like a whirlwind. It was like two weeks, and you see in the book. Um, time kind of collapses on itself during that. And then all of a sudden it's like, and then I'm back in my apartment in New Jersey. You know what I mean? And it's like the bottle of wine that I was drinking is sitting there still on the floor half because I had just kind of jumped up and sprung into action. And the quiet that waits for you <laughs> is like, oh my gosh, it, it's really difficult um, because, and kind of you said this, you know, to publish the memoir, and then I'm running around, I'm running all over America throughout fall of 2019, and then January, and then I get to February, and I come back to Columbus, and I catch my breath. You know, I think feelings and history and all of my griefs and ghosts, they had their appointment set, you know what I mean? You, it, certainly, writing a memoir is a very interesting experience. Um yeah, so it, it was going to, you know, spring of 2020, no matter what happened in the country and the world, was going to be intense for Sight Jones, I can tell you. But to literally just be home alone, oh my goodness, yeah. And so I think that's part of where that poem comes from, you know, beginning to be like, try you like pull the thread and then everything kind of comes unraveled as you begin to realize. And this, again, is even difficult to, to kind of say. You think you're just grieving the person you've lost. And you are. But with time and some perspective, when you can get to the point of where you can talk about it without fully bursting into tears, you begin to realize you're grieving just all the changes. One thing leads to another thing, leads to another thing, leads to another. And there's no going back. You can't put it all back in the box. And you just kind of look up, you know, and I was like, damn. I, and I just, I was like, I've, I've moved to a different place. I've changed my job. I, you know, and, and so, yeah, with this new book, I think, in addition to everything collectively, I wanted to try to acknowledge. I also wanted to bow to the fact that my mother passing away changed my life in so many ways. And I can't separate anymore the good from the heartbreaking. It's just life now, you know? And I think it takes a long time to get there. And that part, I don't think anyone prepared me for the way that, truthfully, there's a there's like a Pixar cartoon called Inside Out, and I, it's they somehow at the very end talk about how happy. And, and yes. I remember watching uh-huh. that the first time, like that's going to be a hard concept for kids, but it's totally true that once you've lost someone like that, right. that it's not like uh-huh. you just go around crying all the time forever, but it the tears are in your pocket during your joy, right? right? That that. That how much would your mother 
have loved and also lectured you about this right. one made because it's spicy sometimes. Right. But how much <laughs> would she yeah. have loved to smack you with this book and mm-hmm. and told you how proud she was that that even in your triumph, and this goes for everyone. I mean, we live through this this collective time that I think we're still really processing, and that's where we are. Alive we are, and we world. have to say we are still processing. We are still th- that everyone yeah. feels like they're back to normal, but. Again, that's why I think this is hitting people so hard alive at the end of the world, because we're not. We went through this time, and it is still, the the grief of it and the sadness of it is still in your pockets, and that's just how it's going to be. That's That there is no spell to get rid of the grief, because there is no getting rid of it. It ebbs, it flows, it's with you when you're triumphant, it's with you when you're sad, it's there. Yeah. And you figure out how to walk with it. Yeah, and grief is... I often say deeply human and deeply humanizing. I mean, I had to grow up. I had to, again, like as I said, I was I was 24 and you know, 20s are it's like you're you're just barely an adult. You're 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 a very, very immature person at that point. And I had to grow up very quickly um in a lot of different ways to meet the moment. And not just, in, you know, just for myself, for my family, for who I wanted to be in the world now. Um, I remember at one point my uncle, who I write about a bit in the memoir and was so great. And, you know, he was like, I think you should move back to Memphis, which I had never lived in as an adult. And he was like, I-, I think you should move back to Memphis and, you know, it would be family and everything. Yeah. And I see the look on your face <laughs> where you're like, having read oh. the book, you know exactly what. But, and I like to be, and I, again, but a moment where confidently, compassionately, not yelling, not whining, I was like, no, that's, that's not, a, that's not the right decision for me, you know? And, and so grief is one of the ways I think love, I think friendship, I think art, there are many ways we grow into ourselves um, that are much more fun to talk about. But um, grief is also one of the ways that I think we learn compassion. We learn patience because you're going through it and you're like, wait a minute, we're all going through, like, you mean to tell me, like you said, like your student, they're like, what, what, you know, it's like, turn to your left, turn to your right. You don't know anybody who hasn't already been touched by grief or will at least at some point be touched by grief in some way, many, many different ways over the course of their life. And I think when you begin to have that, you're like, huh, okay, interesting. You know what I mean? Like it just, it changed the way I hold myself in 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 accompaniment with other people and um gosh it's a high price but but I, I value it. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. I could talk to you about this book all day and that's not fair that I don't get to, but we do need to wind <laughs> down. So we always just close a little lightning round completely okay. different than what we've been talking about. There's no points assessed. Okay. No okay. minus five for Slytherin. I'll just ask you and you can pick one, okay? Okay. All right. Um do you prefer coffee or tea? Right now, tea. Mountains or the beach? Mountains. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Happy or interesting? <laughs> interesting. <laughs> <laughs> That's just snotty. You can't uh, ask a poet that. Come on, man. <laughs> um, CNC Music Factory is going to make you sweat or okay. Brandy is sitting in my room. Oh, my God. Oh, you are cruel. Oh, and you did your homework. I know, right? Gold wow. star. Um, ooh. 
Uh, I, it's, it's sitting up in my room. That's the song that like now, like CNC's Music Factory is going to make you sweat. It's such an important like milestone song, but I could listen to sitting up in my room every day quite happily. Wonderful. <laughs> oh, that was tough. <laughs> Do you think if you had gotten onto the show, Barney, that you think you would have had a different relationship with Gonna Make You Sweat? Probably the trauma. <laughs> I mean, God, I think fame in some ways is like a curse. It's one of the, like, you don't want the gods to answer your prayers. Yeah, yikes. I'm so glad I did not. Like, for, and listeners who like have no idea, I at one point auditioned for the Barney television show when I was like in the first grade or something in Dallas. I'm so glad I didn't get it, but I danced to Scissors I love, I was not no there. No choreography, just vibes. It was literally like when, when the movie Little Miss Sunshine came out, they're like, just play it and let her go. That was me. I love that. I love that movie so much. And oh, I am now so substituting sweet. you into the, the yes, ending. A little black, little. Oh my gosh. That's fantastic. Same outfit and everything. That is Same fantastic. Oh my gosh. Um, let's see. These are a few um, fill in the blanks here. If I wasn't working as a writer and I had a little magic, I would be a... Fashion designer. Ooh, fun. Fashion's my Saeed. Um, What is something quirky that folks don't know about you? This could be a like, a love, a pet peeve, a creepy vendetta. A little quirk about me that people don't know. Or even just like how you load your dishwasher. I'm trying to think of some from the book. Oh, well, I mean, this kind of goes with fashion. I like, so when I'm, when I'm traveling abroad, I really like collecting textiles if I can. Like if I'm traveling to other countries, like if I can buy like scarves and out. Yeah, it's it's been a while since I've like been out in the world in that way. But yeah, I will just like collect bits of like fabric and stretches and stuff that are very specific. And maybe they end up on my couch or around a chair or something. Oh, I love that. I love that. They All travel right, last- well. Last two. What's your favorite ice cream? It, it's probably some like a some version of like a birthday cake or like a wedding cake ice cream. <gasps> Jenny, I had Jenny's this. ice cream had it's like a special edition they do in the summer. But yeah, I tend to like like a like a yeah. Nick Stone was on uh, recently and she was talking about Jenny's ice cream. She called it bougie, but it's also her favorite. It, 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 it real. <laughs> That's just math. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, last one. If we were okay. to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love, what would we see? Um, I would be with friends, um, probably glasses of wine <laughs> within reach, um, probably out on a patio, and you probably see me like mid-laughter. Love to laugh. I, I feel like I saw a version of that when we were at that conference because I kept running into you. That's real. Yeah. Yeah, that's very me at that conference at some point in the evenings, and I'll just, like, sit down somewhere in the hotel lobby, and you just watch people. It's like a blood clot gathering. And at one point, it was, like, 30 <laughs> poets. It was just, like, Jericho Brown, Dennis Smith, Nate Marshall, Franny, you know, all of us. I love that. I love that for you guys. <laughs> well, Saeed Jones, thank you for stopping by today and for your willingness to laugh a little with us. Anne-Marie, thank you. This was great. This was really, again, one of the most fun conversations about grief and loss and calamity and poetry. Um, Thank you. This was great. Well, in your memoir, (laughs) you wrote something about if you could draw enough glances, any room could orbit around you. So thanks for walking into our room and giving us a chance to orbit around the gravitational pull of you. 
Planet Saeed. I love it. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Yeah. All right, folks. Saeed Jones is the author of several books. I'm holding them up again, as though you can see. Um, his first is Prelude to Bruise. Uh, it's a book of poetry. How We Fight for Our Lives is the memoir. Alive at the End of the World is his most recent book of poems. You can find them wherever books are sold. To everyone, we're wishing you love and light wherever the day takes you. Be good to yourself, be good to one another, and we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrube and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.